0: Don't try to show value before you have the data necessary to show it. And also, once you create value, that is a prime
1: time to introduce some friction that helps you in the long run create even more value. That's Casey Winters, the growth advisor in residence at Greylock Partners. Casey got interested in growth via his background in marketing and his holistic approach to helping Apartments.com achieve quick growth from 2005 to 2008. He then joined Grubhub around the 15 person mark and helped the company scale from 40,000 users
2: up to 3 million when it went public. In 2013, Pinterest reached out and Casey ended up joining the team to help lead growth and later overcome challenges associated with international expansion and growth. Today, Casey advises several companies like Pocket, Canva, Reddit, and works directly with a handful of portfolio companies as part of his role at Greylock Partners. What Casey's
1: talking about is part of his framework for helping users find value in a product and then capitalizing on those happy moments to ensure more value is delivered back to them at a later time. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano.
2: And I'm Tyler Copeland. And today we're speaking with Casey Winters, the growth advisor in residence at Greylock Partners. Casey has an extensive background in growing consumer tech companies, having led serious growth efforts at Grubhub and Pinterest. Casey joins us to share his story, how he got into marketing and
1: startups, what it was like growing a marketplace like Grubhub from 40,000 users to over 3 million, what it was like helping Pinterest expand internationally, how to think about growth and innovations within a startup, and much more. So let's get started.
2: Hey, Casey, thanks so much for being on the show today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, Franco and I are extremely excited to have you on to learn more about your time in marketing, growth and startups. But before we dive into what you're currently up to today, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Where are you from and what did you study?
0: Sure. So I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I went to college in Chicago at Loyola University there. And I studied marketing, probably not a surprise. Then I ended up doing my MBA in Chicago as well at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. The way that's structured is you have a few concentrations. So marketing, strategic management, entrepreneurship, and managerial and organizational
2: behavior were the four concentration areas I had. That's really cool. So where did your passion for marketing and startups come from?
0: So how I got into marketing was that it was just the least annoying business major at Loyola. And I knew I wanted to be in business. In terms of, you know, kind of startups, my first job was at apartments.com. And as a kind of tech company built inside a joint venture, it was not a startup. So there were, there was this pressure to always specialize, to grow your career path. Like Casey, do you want to be an SEO person? Do you want to be a paid acquisition person? Do you want to be an analyst? And I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to learn all the different parts of building the company. So what they did is they gave me a bunch of startup projects inside the company that enabled me to do lots of those different things. Like we started a rental homes business, which I got to work on SEO strategy for. We started a last minute apartment rental business, which I got to own all the marketing for. And that was kind of my first taste of, you know, kind of the startup side. And I enjoyed that a lot more than the career ladder of
2: the, you know, tech corporation. Yeah, for sure. So what was the mindset that helped you down the growth path?
0: I don't know if it's more of a a mindset, but, you know, kind of starting my career, I, you know, thought that if I could just collect skills, then it would, there'd be an opportunity later on where I could use all those skills together in more of a, you know, a management or leadership role. So I really focused on that in terms of like specifically around growth. When I was an analyst at apartments.com, my job was to measure every marketing initiative for effectiveness. And that was just a really great. Way to learn how tech companies grew, which was very different from what I learned about in school. And it created a foundation for me to go learn those marketing initiatives specifically. So, you know, I'm measuring how to do affiliate marketing and SEO and SEM. Then that's a really great foundation for me to start working on affiliate marketing or SEO and SEM. And as I started working on a lot of those initiatives, and ended up that tuning the product in certain ways was the w- way to drive the most benefit. In the case of SEO, it's changing the landing page so it's more relevant. Or in the case of SEM, it's improving the conversion rate so you can get you know a lower cost per acquisition. So it just kind of you know we didn't call it growth at the time, but it was just this more holistic thinking around you know what helps the business succeed and that it cuts across all these traditionally disparate areas like marketing and product development.
2: That's really interesting. And so after the first phase of your career, you joined Grubhub in 2008 as a consumer marketing director. So what was your time at Grubhub like and how were you guys applying growth ideas to this type of marketplace?
0: Yeah, Grubhub was fantastic. I mean, we had, you know, hyper growth for, you know, five straight years, essentially zero attrition of employees. So it was a bunch of people that you could really trust that you'd been in the trenches with for a long time that knew how you worked. So I came in as the 15th employee and left at almost 1,000, and we grew from 30,000 users who had ever tried the service when I joined the company to over 3 million when I left. The company was growing so fast that it felt like a different job every six months, so you were constantly learning new things, and in terms of growth... Literally my only job directive from Matt, the CEO when I joined the company was to double the growth rate of the company. So I had the purview to look at essentially anything that would accomplish that goal. Product changes, city expansion, spending money on advertising. And I mean, we found that a lot of our biggest impacts were tuning the product for, you know, SEO conversion and retention. So a lot of my time was spent there, but also did, you know, offline marketing, you know, paid acquisition, all that kind of stuff too.
2: So to dive deeper on that topic. What were some of your approaches to developing and testing ideas for both online and offline growth? And what were some of the key differences in these approaches to consider?
0: Yeah, so when I joined, I basically brainstormed a bunch of different things that could have impact for the company. And essentially, I tried to scope them down to month-long experiments. At the end, I didn't necessarily want them to be... You know, hit certain effectiveness targets, but I did want to see that they were on a path. So, let's say you're spending money on AdWords and you want to, you know, have a payback period within six months, which means that your target cost per acquisition might be $15. I didn't necessarily expect after a month of iterating on AdWords that I would get to $15, but would it be $30 or would it be $300 CPA? If it's $300, then it's probably not something I can continue to optimize down and get close. If it's $30 then I'm within striking distance right so I did a bunch of these tests of different areas and just saw what the impact looked like and if it could be something that would be you know sustainable growth for the business and then, you know, double down on the ones that worked and, and cut the ones that weren't working super well. In terms of the difference between online and offline growth, I do believe Grubhub was one of the first that really kind of pursued both effectively. And the differences is that, you know, online initi- initiatives, they give you a lot of data, right? So you can run an A-B experiment, look at the exact difference between your enabled and control grouped. You can get exact cost per acquisition on your online ad spend. With offline, you have way fewer data points. So what we focused on was trying to create more data that would tell us what the impact was on these initiatives. So, for example, every time you finished your first online order, there was a survey about how you heard about us that appeared over the order receipt and it looked like you had to fill it out to get to your order receipt. So we used that to attribute how well our offline marketing initiatives were working and calculate them like we would paid acquisition and get a CPA target and get an actual CPA based on the number of survey responses that said, Hey, the transit ad was why I heard about you. And we would run those offline initiatives, just like the performance marketing. If it's hitting, you know, a CPA and it allows us to make our money back in six months, we're going to keep doing it. If it's, you know, above that, we're going to cut it. Right. We ha- also had to use some fancier tools at scale as we started doing more of these online, offline initiatives. So we invested in multi touch attribution pretty early. And what that does for people who are not familiar is most of the ways that people measure marketing initiatives is they say, okay, Casey came in and purchased, and he came from this channel, let's say Google Organic. And Tyler came in and purchased from this channel, let's say it was a Facebook ad. The reality can be, that a multiple sets of things actually push you over to make that purchase, especially for more high consideration purchases or or purchases that involve trust, like giving out your home address in the case of Grubhub. So what multi-touch attribution does is it says, hey, we're going to be able to figure out that what drove Casey to purchase was not just the Google organic search, but before that he saw an ad on the train. And in between that, there was a Facebook ad." that that the person saw so all of them should share some sort of credit and essentially the way it does that is you need to have a large enough group of users that are seeing the same types of ads and then you can have one group that sees these sets of four sets of ads and then one group that only sees three of them and then what multi-touch attribution does it looks at the difference in terms of the conversion rate of those two groups to tell you the value of the one one group didn't see and one group did see. So that was something that we built because what happens when you don't do multi-touch attribution is there's these things very at the bottom of the funnel of a purchase like searching and they will steal all the credit of all the things further up in the funnel that make people aware of the service and get people to consider it, you know, which a, a lot of times is what offline marketing does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was super cool and insightful as to how to operate and measure growth experiments at a large public company. And so in the next phase of your career, you ended up joining Pinterest in 2013, where you were a product lead focused on growth. So while I'm sure everyone's pretty familiar with Pinterest, can you tell us a little bit more about how you created the opportunity to join the team there and some of the high level things that you were thinking about?
0: Yeah. So for Pinterest, you know, I had been working at Grubhub for five and a half years and I was doing my MBA part time at night and I had finished my MBA and then, you know, Grubhub was filing to go public and we were integrating Seamless, one of our chief competitors into the company. So that all created a a time where I could evaluate, you know, what I wanted to do long term. and. With Grubhub, we were going to have to redraw all the organizational charts anyway, integrating a company about the same size as ours. So at that time, I said, you know what, I know you guys are going to have to do a lot of work to you know, figure out the new org structure. You should just leave me out of it and I'll move to San Francisco. While I was planning to move to San Francisco, I started interviewing for a few roles and I was zeroing in on this VP of marketing role. And uh, when I was coming back for my final interview there, Pinterest just reached out on LinkedIn and told me about, you know, what they were doing and some of the opportunities there. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to be in San Francisco interviewing anyway. You know, I might as well, you know, kind of stop by and spend some time with you guys as well. And once I did that, I actually found it to be like a much better opportunity than the path that I was on. So I decided to, uh, you know, join Pinterest
1: and pretty glad I did. Yeah, absolutely. What a cool story and great timing on that message from Pinterest.
0: Oh, totally. I mean, they had no idea that I was moving to San Francisco. I don't know how they would have known
1: at least. Yeah, for sure. So what were some of the main focuses from a product or growth perspective there?
0: Yeah, so the main focus was driving international growth. Pinterest had a product with pretty high retention and high penetration in the U.S., but neither of those were true yet outside the US. So we really hadn't, you know, cracked the nut of of international. So we needed both to build a better retaining international product, as well as creating new acquisition strategy, so that international people would be introduced to Pinterest for the first
1: time. That's cool. And so as you were trying to solve internationalization and localization, what were some of the experiments or tactics to try and solve for the challenges that come with dealing with different cultures languages or geographies
0: yeah so there are a few that had the largest impact on on the teams i worked on so one was really building a focus around seo you know pinterest is a place that you know you collect all of your interest so we had all this data on the best ideas around so many different topics and when people are searching for ideas Before Pinterest, they would go to Google, right? So what we started doing was creating pages and allowing people's own board pages to rank when people are searching for the best men's fashion or best winter coats, whatever. So that was kind of the original strategy that I started pursuing with with the with the team. And we built out these concepts of topic pages. So people on Pinterest, they create boards of their favorite things related to certain topics. And that's one person's opinion on what's important on a certain topic, but Pinterest has all the repin data across its entire user base, right? So instead of saying, okay, this is Casey's board on winter fashion and sure. Casey's good. So we trust him. Pinterest has a page that just has all the top repinned content related to winter fashion, which usually means it's higher quality. And as we started creating those pages, we saw that they would rank better on Google and they would convert better as well because they just had higher quality content. So that was the first big initiative. The second big initiative was a lot of those people coming from Google, they were looking at all that content, but they weren't signing up for Pinterest to learn more about how they could get personalized content delivered to them. So we introduced the strategy where when you click on an image to see more of it, we actually would ask you to sign up and build a home feed with that image you know, to proceed. And then as you started to scroll down a page and look at more pins, we would stop you eventually and say, hey, you need to sign up to Pinterest to see the rest of this content. And that worked extremely well. I mean, we did an initial like two day experiment, very hacky, very poorly designed. Just to validate the idea, and it ended up increasing the conversion rate 50% on the first experiments. We're like, "Whoa, this is really impactful!" So then we iterated, and now it converts like 5x better and is less annoying. So that was that was another big initiative. The other major ones that we worked on that were really impactful was um, introducing people to the app. So if you came to Pinterest on mobile web, we were aggressively upsell you to download the app. And the reason we did that is because as we didn't experiment pushing people to mobile web versus pushing people to the app. The app activated users at three times the rate of mobile web. So it was clear that people were getting a lot better experience and sticking around. The last one that I'll talk about is when I joined Pinterest, we had a lot of emails and notifications just being sent out related to different things like, oh, someone repinned your pin, someone followed you, as well as like personalized recommendations like, here are more pins on home decor. And it created this mess of a user experience and that some people were getting thousands of emails a week. We couldn't tell if we were going to send a personalized email, if you had received a repin email right before. So we spent nine months just rebuilding that and building a a one-to-one strategy for every user. So you got the amount of email you wanted at the right time and not too much of it. And with the right, with the content that you actually want, like, Hey, you respond to all the social stuff, you're going to get that. You don't like that and you only like personalized recommendations, that's all you'll get. And we launched that for email. It worked really well. So then we launched it for push also. And that led to hundreds of thousands of additional,
1: you know, weekly active users on the initial experiment. And I'm sure it's millions more now that they've iterated. That's really cool. All those projects sound really interesting. And so I've noticed that you've mentioned the two points in the conversation now, just a moment ago with the example of the signup page at Pinterest and previously with the post-purchase survey at Grubhub. So what's your take on the balance needed around asking users for feedback or insights? How much is too much and when would you recommend doing that?
0: Yeah, so there's a bunch of things to consider here. So I'm always in favor of showing value as soon as possible, but don't try to show value before you have the data necessary to show it and also once you create value that is a prime time to introduce some friction that helps you in the long run create even more value so in the case of Pinterest you know you had people seeing these images and then if they would scroll that would indicate they like what they're seeing and if they would click on an image that indicates they like what we're seeing which means okay we've demonstrated value. Now we can ask them to give us some value so that we can deliver even more long-term value, which is a personalized feed. Right. And that, that worked pretty well. What I don't like is, you know, you come to a landing page and it's like sign up to see anything. It's like you haven't demonstrated why a, a sign up is worthwhile for the user. Why would they do that? In the case of Grubhub, You know, we waited until after the order and I was talking with Gustav at Y Combinator recently, and he calls these happy moments, which is there's clearly something someone just did from the product that made them happy and is kind of an end state for the session. So when that occurs, you can generally ask the person to do something else. A lot of times that's asked them to refer a friend, but in our, in our case, Grubhub is not a very viral product. It was asked them how they heard about us and you can introduce that friction because they're they're feeling pretty good about the experience at that point. So you need to be careful around these friction moments and when are you introducing them? Have you demonstrated enough value that the person is willing to give back a little bit? Uh, Darius Contractor has a really great blog post on this called the Psych Framework, which I would recommend to you know, all of your listeners that really just analyzes how much motivation a person has on each step, which allows you to understand you know how much effort you can ask someone to put in to move
1: forward. That's really cool, and we'll make sure that we link back to that so others can check it out. So coming back to Pinterest specifically, but feel free to draw on your insights from Grubhub as well, what were some of the biggest lessons for you personally from managing a growth team and growing a product internationally?
0: There's a bunch. I mean, at Grubhub, I think we learned that you have to measure initiatives over the long term. We had a couple of examples where, you know, an experiment looks like it's going well and then it kind of turns for the worse over the long term. So, you know, really making sure you're measuring every like acquisition experiment on the impact on long term retention and not just, you know, first time purchases or or signups or something like that was something, you know, that we had to learn the hard way. And also just kind of what's that next level of analysis as you scale that you can do and how that would really drive insight so you know in the case of grubhub like groupons look pretty good when um you run it as an acquisition strategy initially because you run it a bunch of people buy it and then a bunch of people who buy it start ordering immediately and then they retain which you don't see as all the people who bought it and then don't purchase using the groupon until the groupon's about to expire those people never return So then your blended retention actually looks pretty poor. So like, what's that next level of analysis you can do that really makes you understand the long-term impact of all the initiatives is something, you know, I had to learn the hard way. In terms of Pinterest, I think one of the things that we learned is that, well, a lot of times you know, what got you here won't get you there. And especially when you're tackling new markets like international, you can't rely on dog fooding the product to understand the issues. Like these are different people with different issues. So it really forced us to get outside the building and talk to those people outside the US, watch them use the product and watch them largely fail. And that allowed us to kind of build a better product that actually solved their needs.
1: So diving into that last point a bit more, What were some of the challenges that you ran into when you saw international audiences use Pinterest?
0: Yeah, so I spent a lot of 2015 in uh, countries like Brazil, France, and Germany watching people try the product for the first time. And what we noticed is while the macro vision for the product didn't need to necessarily change for these countries, we definitely had to tweak the experience so that they got the value. And that was something we could only learn by watching them use the product and fail. So, for example, everyone was getting English recommendations at first, and this not only includes content that's written in English, but also about ingredients they don't have in their country for recipes, in measurements that they don't use, like, you know, they use the metric system and all of these are are not in the metric system. Other things like the save button said pin it in, in all languages, which is in English and not you know wasn't translated and not only did they not know what it means but because it was something that was not translated they assumed it was the logo instead of a call to action so people were having trouble finding essentially the save button so we had to go and and fix all of this we had to change all the recommendations to be in the local language for stuff that's repinned by local pinners we had to change the pin it button to say the local word for save in all languages bunch of things like that, that, you know, are are head smacking obvious in retrospect, but you just don't see when you're, you know, in the office because you're not looking at the product in their language and not understanding that like, oh, measurements not being in the metric system actually does matter a whole lot. You just don't think about those things because you're not from that country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So was it all just language and content tweaks or were there any big product value changes that needed to happen in order to really resonate with those users?
0: Yeah, once we fixed a lot of those issues, growth really started to take off in in these countries. There were kind of some of these my new things you would find in certain countries and we'd think like oh we're gonna have to do something special for germany here but then when we did it we realized it worked everywhere so for example people in germany are, are not super excited by signing up with facebook facebook it's it's not one of their most popular countries and you know it's a country that is very concerned about privacy because they used to live with no privacy so they really appreciate it So we're like, okay, we'll downplay um, signing up with Facebook in Germany and put the focus on signing up with email first. And that increased conversion rate to sign up in Germany for the heck of it. We just tried it in other countries and it worked pretty much everywhere else just as well. So the insight came from that country, but the actual product change we made kind of worked everywhere. And I'd say that was usually what happened in these cases.
2: Those are some great insights. And it's awesome to hear about your time at Grubhub and Pinterest. So fast forwarding to today, you're currently a growth advisor in residence at Greylock Partners. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on and how you advise startups to begin thinking about their own growth framework?
0: Sure. At Greylock, I basically help startups With all sorts of scaling challenges that are in the portfolio, these can be around organizational structure or process, but it's frequently around like product or growth strategy, like how to improve your activation rate or how to generate an acquisition loop from your retained users. You know, some of the common ones is kind of like, how do I think about growth? How do I prioritize it? You know, how do I... Judge that versus working on core product or versus working on innovation. And you know, my framework is that, first off, you need to have a clear definition of what you want growth to mean for your company. The one that I applied to Pinterest is that you can build new value propositions or you can improve on the current value propositions. Growth doesn't do either. Growth makes sure more people connect to the existing value propositions. And that can be by getting you know more traffic or more users. But it can be by helping the people that are already coming in have you know reduced friction in discovering the value prop to make sure the people that are there actually get it. Right. So setting that definition is super important. And then what a lot of these companies want help with is like, oh, I need to hire like a VP of growth. And you know what I tell them is like, okay, that's not what you need. What you need is to start dedicating resources toward growth that already work at the company, that already understand the challenges, and then have them show some real progress on working on one of these issues that's stifling your growth. And then maybe from that, you can build out like a true growth team, you know, with a a VP of growth. But these things are generally best solved by people at the company that really have a lot of knowledge about what's going right and what's going wrong. Trying to have a different way of working and a different team be started by someone externally who has to learn all this stuff from scratch is basically a recipe for the rest of the company rejecting them, right? Because they're not going to truly get it. Their first experiments are going to be usually kind of wrong in some way. If you have someone internally at the company saying, hey, I'm going to help solve growth, they have a lot more trust from which to build you know, growth credibility. And because growth is a new way of working at most of these companies, it is treated with a lot of skepticism. And addressing that is a key part of being a growth leader that gets talked about a lot less than you know all the crazy experiments and the metrics gains and things like that.
2: I really like that approach. So you've also helped to create content around retention and engagement for Reforge with Brian Balfour. Why is retention and engagement such an important topic to cover in your experience?
0: Yeah, so Brian, along with Sean Close from Metro Mile, we've been working on this course dedicated to retention and engagement. For those of you who don't know, Reforge is a course dedicated to learning growth. And this is kind of the second course that's being created outside of the original growth course. The the reason that Brian wanted to create this dedicated course is that it was the number one request from his alumni on what they wanted to learn more about why i'm so passionate about it is that you know i feel retention and engagement drive all other aspects of the business so if you look at the most successful tech companies retaining users creates its own acquisition of new users via the creation of a loop people know about viral loops but there are other types of loops that Retaining users also generates Pinterest, for example, is a content loop where by virtue of using Pinterest, you repin content, you create boards, we can then distribute boards to attract new users. Retention and engagement also drives one of the other core elements of your business, which is monetization. So the more people retain, the more purchases they'll make or the more ads they will view, you know, depending on your business model, the longer they will subscribe, all of those things. The third area where I'd say retention engagement is super important is that it creates a competitive edge. your acquisition channels. So let's say you're going to grow via paid acquisition. If you have higher retention, you're generally going to have higher monetization, which means that you can pay more for acquired users and still be profitable. And I've seen this in my experience. So Grubhub had double the retention rates of its competitors in online food delivery, which meant that Paid acquisition was a lot more efficient for us than it was for the competition, meaning we could get payback periods that were much more effective. And the booking.com is a famous example of this as well. So retention and engagement, it kind of just opens up all the other areas of your business. So if there's one thing to focus on, I always advise companies to focus on that. And once you feel like you're really nailing that, then you can amplify
2: that with other initiatives around it. Yeah, for sure. So you've obviously got tons of experience building and advising consumer tech startups. Besides some of the great advice you've shared with us today during the show, what's some other advice you would have to give to new consumer startups or founders today?
0: Yes, I mean, by far the most important one, right, is just focus on activation and retention. Build a product that people keep coming back to. That makes sure that you're creating something of real value for people. And then as you're thinking through that, What a lot of founders want to do is like, okay, I built one great product, now let me go build a second. And what I advise founders on is like, if you build a product that has product market fit, it has good retention, you should not be working on building anything else for like a very long time, like 10-year timeframe. Assuming the market is large enough, right? Your incentive should be to make sure that everyone experiences... The product that you've built that you ha- that has found product market fit, and you know, with founders, like the way they got to product market fit is they built something new, right? So the way their mind works and what they think is the solution to most of their problems is to build new stuff. But once you've built something that actually works, you should be incentivized to just continue working on growing that thing for a very long period of time any work on a new product is a distraction from making sure the maximum amount of people experience the valuable product that you already built. So that's that's one of the the core principles that you know I guide a lot of
1: entrepreneurs on. And so what's the balance between innovating on the product or space versus just focusing on growth? What's your insight on that?
0: The way I think about it and the, the framework which I've written about, which we can you know link to in the notes, is when you're trying to find product market fit, most of your time is spent on innovation, right? You're creating something new and hoping it has value to customers. And then as you hone in on that product market fit, the amount of time you spend innovating goes down and the amount of time you spend iterating goes up. And once you hit product market fit, you essentially are disincentivized from any innovation for a very long period of time and you ramp up iteration and growth, which is you make the product a little bit better every day and then you try and connect more people to that value every day. And the only thing that would change that is as you start to saturate that market. Once you approach saturating that market, you are incentivized to start innovating again and building a new value prop so that your growth doesn't stall once you you know, got everyone in the US using your product or anything like that. So what you frequently see is a lot of companies, they focus for a very long time and then as they're going public, that's around the time they're saturating their core market and that's when you see them start to ramp up innovative projects. So that their growth doesn't kind of flatten out, you know, as they've saturated the core market. And Grubhub, you know, a famous example is Grubhub started building its own delivery network when it went public because it had basically signed up all of the restaurants that did their own delivery by the time it was going public. You know, Uber in a similar example, they tested a few initiatives and decided like Uber Eats was the one thing that they were going to expand on because they had saturated a lot of the US at least with ride sharing, right? So that's the framework on how I think about it, which means how fast you're going to do it is basically how fast
1: you saturate the first market. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So you've mentioned a few resources so far, including the course with Reforge, but are there any other resources that you've recently discovered or keep coming back to?
0: Yeah, so this is not in the Reforge course, but Brian Balfour did a four-part post on building a billion dollar business that I think is one of the best posts on kind of thinking about product market fit that I've ever read. So I highly advise people give that a read. It's very insightful. There's a blog that I read religiously that I that I don't see come up a lot uh, that I really love and it's uh, Bill Barnett's blog on competition. Uh, Bill Barnett's a Stanford professor. Really insightful. Pretty much every post has a lot of interesting nuggets for me that help me learn in terms of, you mentioned kind of things that I'm coming back to you. For 2018, I, I made a resolution to go back and read all the books that influenced me and you know, kind of make sure that I got all that I could get out of them and to trace back where you know some of my thoughts come from so i'm about to finish competitive strategy by michael porter and then i'm going to start on uh, the two books by chris sook which is profit from the core and expansion from the core and i'm going to kind of continue to do that on all the books that influence me and you know kind of trace back some of the roots on where my ideas come from as well as probably pick up a few nuggets along the
1: way that's really cool. Sounds like an awesome project. It would be really awesome if you were able to, you know, do some kind of write up or recap blog post, maybe outlining all the books you do plan to go back to and some of the lessons you took from them this time around. That's a good idea. Cool. So you've shared a ton of different insights and growth tactics with us over the course of the episode. Do you have any final thoughts or words of advice to leave us with?
0: Uh, you know, not really. I'm just, you know, happy to help in any way advance the best practices of building a company. So I'm always interested to learn anything that people have learned about how build, how to build a company that has been successful, and I'm happy to volunteer any of the things that I've learned. So you know, hopefully some of these things that we've talked about today are helpful, or some of the things that have been on my blog are, are helpful. I'm just always trying to learn more and trying to distribute back what I learn about
1: how to build companies, and I hope more people continue to do that as well. Absolutely. That's an awesome mission to be on. Casey, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. It was awesome to have you. Yeah, thanks Casey. again for having me. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at Hack to Start, or drop us an email, hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.